morning, everybody. Good to see you all here this morning. There should be an outline in your seat on the other side of your notice sheet. If you want to follow the outline, it's got all the verses that we're looking at this morning. And there's a pen as well in the back of your seat if you want to fill the various things in on the notes if you want to use that. Or you can just listen, that's fine. I'm going to pray and uh, then we're going to get into um, our Bible passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would fill us anew with a, a fresh sense of passion for your name that we would be filled with a desire to worship you and to glorify you in our lives. Lord, we love you. We want to thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to be our savior. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus. And we worship you this morning. Help us now as we look at your word together to uh, learn the truths of it, to humble ourselves under it. And we pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning uh, as we look together in your word. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Author Max Lucado has written these words about the cross of Jesus. He says, history has only one main event. Mankind's timeline is dotted with important moments. The first spark from the first flint, the rolling of the first wheel, the treating of the first wound. Who dares minimize these events? But who dares compare them with the cross? History has only one main event. Scripture, the Bible, has only one main event. Others matter, but only one is essential. The story of Jericho might stir you, but falling walls can't redeem you. Moses will give you directions for the wilderness, but no solution for your sin. David's defeat of Goliath might reduce your timidity, but only the cross prepares you for eternity. Scripture has only one main event. Even in the life of Jesus, there is only one main event. For if there is no cross of Christ, then there is no truth Christ. And when it comes to your life, the same is true. To remove the cross is to remove the hinge pin from the door of hope, the door to your hope. For if there is no cross, then there is no sacrifice for sin. If there's no sacrifice for sin, then how will you face a sinless God? Will you cleanse your own sin? And if there's no cross of Christ, then there's no resurrection of Christ. And if there's no resurrection of Christ, how will you live again? Will you push back your own grave? Forgiveness of sin, deliverance from death, these are the claims of the cross. The cross is not an event in history. The cross is the event in history. The central point, the central focus in the Bible and in all history is the coming of Jesus into this world to die on the cross for your sin, for my sin. To take the punishment there on the cross for all the wrong things that you have done, that I have done, what the Bible calls sins. And the central point is his resurrection from the dead, his conquering over death. So that through these things, by trusting in who Jesus is and by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, we can have our sins forgiven. We can have a relationship with God. And we can have a certainty and assurance of eternal life. Without the cross, without trusting in the cross and in who Jesus is and surrendering our lives to him, none of that is true for us. And we're outside of it. But when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we make him the Lord of our life, when we trust in who he is and what he's done for us, then all of those wonderful blessings become ours. And everything else in the Bible and everything else in history is either building up to that key moment when Jesus would die on the cross, or it is looking back in history to that key moment when Jesus died on it. Today we look back in history, and for those of us here this morning, and perhaps many of us here this morning, have put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus. 
we can look back as we've surrendered our lives to him. We can look back on that moment in history when Jesus dealt with our sins, when Jesus made it possible for us to be reconciled. Once the Bible describes us as, as, as God's enemies because of our sin. And outside of God's love, we're God's enemies. But this morning, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. And that's why we take communion every week. And we're going to take communion a little bit later on the service. We want to keep on looking back, don't we, to the most important event in history. We want to keep on looking back to the most important person in history. When we take communion, the the bread reminds us of Jesus' body broken there on the cross. And the juice, in our case, it's not wine, it's just juice, but the juice reminds us of Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross. And communion keeps on reminding us how important it is that we we let other people, those of us who've come into the good and the blessing of eternal life and a relationship with God, how important it is that we then tell other people that they too can come to know Jesus as their saviour. But for those who trusted in God and lived for, uh, before Jesus died and rose again, they didn't look back, they looked forward. They looked forward in time to when Jesus would come and when he would die and when he would rise again. And just as we sometimes, I certainly do, get sidetracked and, and we forget just how important Jesus is and how, just how important Jesus' death and resurrection is. And we forget sometimes just how important it is that other people get to know that information and accept it for themselves. So those who lived before the cross, they also got sidetracked. They also didn't always stay focused on living for God and carrying out his plans and and, and playing their part in the plans that God had for them. Isaac was a man in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, who lived 1,900 years before Jesus died and rose again. So almost the same amount of time that we are in today looking back. He looked forward about almost 2,000 years before Jesus died and rose again. But Isaac played a really key role in... God's plan to send Jesus, because when God's son, Jesus, came into the world, he was born as a physical descendant. He was God. He never ceased to be God, but he became a human being, and the human family he was born into, the physical descendant that he was, he was physically descended directly from this man, Isaac. Isaac, in turn, was Abraham's son, a great famous man in the Bible, and God had promised to Abraham that he was going to give him a great family, and from that family was going to come a great nation, the nation of Israel, the Jews. And this nation would become, would become known uh, as God's people, and they would be given a, a special land, the promised land. But more importantly than these physical blessings was the promise to bless the whole world through Abraham and Abraham's family and Isaac's family. God promised Abraham and Isaac that the whole world would be blessed through their offspring. And of course, God was referring specifically to the fact that 1,900 years later, he himself, in the person of the Lord Jesus, would come into this world and be born into their family. And through, De- and th- and through Jesus' death and his resurrection, God made it possible for those who put their faith and trust in who Jesus is and what he's done, in Jesus dying on the cross to take the punishment for their sins, to have their sins forgiven, to enter into this amazing relationship with God, to have eternal life. And that is the greatest blessing that anybody could hope to have. And that was the blessing that God had promised that would come through Isaac and Abraham's offspring. The greatest blessing that anybody could ever have. But both Abraham and Isaac, despite these great promises and despite the fact that God told them they were going to play this key role in in delivering this promise and in the fulfillment, they often got sidetracked. And today we're going to see how Isaac struggled to stay focused on staying true to God and playing his part in fulfilling this great promise 
to bless the world through Jesus. So we're going to read from Genesis 26, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 33 as we continue to work our way through this book of Genesis. We've been doing that over the last few weeks here at Regent, and we're, we're working our way through the, the, the life story of Abraham, and then Isaac, his son, and, and so on. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn uh, with me, you can. We're in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 26, and we're going to read from 1 to 33. If you haven't got a Bible or you just want to listen, that's fine. You can just listen as I read this account of Isaac's life. So we're going to read from chapter 26, verses 1 to 33. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. That's that promise of Jesus coming. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his, father, his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you've become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Isek, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahusath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them and they ate and drank. Early the next morning the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way and left them in peace. 
That day, Isaac's servants came and told, them, told him about the well they had dug. They said, we've found water. He called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. And Beersheba is there in Israel to this day. And you can go and visit it. And you can go see the well that was dug there just outside of the city. Now, God had given this great promise to Abraham. And as Abraham's son, Isaac found himself as the next person to sort of see this promise being fulfilled and lived out and at the center of this promise. And verses 3 and 4 record God reminding Isaac of the promise. He said this, I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And it was through Isaac's offspring, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, that 1,900 years later that God would bless the world. And John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God blessed the world specifically by sending his Son, Jesus And when Jesus died on the cross, he took there the punishment that you and I deserve for all the wrong things, all our screw-ups, all our foul-ups, all our sins. So that if we confess what we have done wrong, if we confess that we're sinners, if we ask him to forgive us, if we thank him for dying for us, if we turn away from our old life and surrender our life to him and make him the Lord of our lives, then we can be forgiven. We can have this amazing relationship with God. We can have eternal life, and all of that comes through Jesus. That is the promise. That is the essence of this promise to bless the world. This is God's blessing to the world, the the offer of forgiveness, the offer of a relationship with God, the offer of eternal life, and all of that comes. We can't earn it. It's not something we have naturally. We have to put our faith and trust as we surrender our lives to Jesus. But despite this promise to bless the world, And despite the key role that Isaac would play in the development of this promise, Isaac found himself facing all sorts of challenges, all sorts of temptations and struggles in his life. Just as we do as we try and live, he just found himself in all sorts of situations. Verse 1 says this, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Isaac was actually on his way down from what is now modern-day Israel down to Egypt. Because in Egypt, it was a land of plenty because of the Nile Delta and so on. So Isaac knew that there was lots of food there. And on his way down to Egypt, tempted as he was to trust in Egypt rather than trusting God's provision, he stopped and he found himself with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And as he's there, God appeared to him in a vision. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. And part of this promise that God gave to Isaac was uh, currently to live in the land, to live in this promised land. And it was the special land that he was given. That was part of the physical promise. But the reality of famine and the reality of the shortage of food made life difficult for Isaac. And despite the fact that, that God had promised him, it's one thing having the faith, but the reality of life kicked in. And so Abraham was tempted to go, sorry, Isaac was tempted to go down to Egypt. And instead of trusting in God to provide for him, the temptation was to look to find other solutions because of the reality of famine. And he should have been focused on playing his part in uh, this great promise that God had given to him. But the reality of life, and in this case famine, really challenged his commitment to stay focused on God and stay focused on on living in the promised land. And the same is true for us today. If we love Jesus, if we're living in a relationship with God, if we're seeking to follow him day by day, then 
Our relationship to this great promise, it's different to Isaac's, but our relationship to, great, to this great promise to bless the world is to spread the good news, to tell others. We've experienced the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with God. So, so our commitment, if you like, is to, to do all that we can to spread this good news, to tell other people about Jesus. Our task is to do all that we can do to make sure that as, as many people as possible get to hear about the good news, the gospel message, this good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. Because ultimately, nothing else matters in life. We can fill our life with all sorts of stuff. And some of it's good and some of it's bad. But ultimately, the only thing that really matters in life is Jesus and our relationship with Jesus. And if we're followers of Jesus this morning, the only thing that really matters is that we tell other people about Jesus. But the Bible also teaches us that we have a real enemy, Satan, who will do all that he can to pull us away from that central task of living for God and spreading that good news about Jesus. Satan has spent all of history doing this. For those like Isaac who lived before Jesus came, Satan did all he could to prevent them from playing their part in that great promise. And since Jesus came and fulfilled this great promise in dying on the cross, Satan has spent the last 2,000 years attacking those that love Jesus. And history is full of that. The New Testament says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Satan or the devil is our enemy. Satan hates Jesus, and he hates those that love Jesus. And the Bible describes him like a lion going around, prowling, looking to devour people. He wants to devour those who love Jesus, those who are seeking to live for him, and those who are seeking to tell others about him. So the Bible tells us that we need to stay alert, we need to be aware. Sometimes Satan comes at us with open and blatant persecution. We don't experience that really in this country, although I think we're starting to see that with some of the laws that are being passed and the climate is changing. But in some countries today, it is illegal to do this. You'll be locked up, you'll be thrown into a labor camp for meeting like this. In North Korea, for instance, in other countries around the world, it is desperately dangerous. And Satan is an uncaged lion in those countries. For us, it's probably a little bit different. It's more subtle. It's temptations. It's illnesses. It's relationship breakdown, relationship fallouts. Satan will throw sickness at us. He'll throw money problems at us. All all sorts of things to try and get us, tempt us away from living for God and trusting God and putting our trust in other things or other people. Sometimes the things he tempts us with are very overtly wrong, things like sexual temptation or maybe financial temptation. But often he'll just cleverly tempt us away from living for God by dangling something in front of us that's not wrong in and of itself. It might even look good. It might be legitimate. But it ends up drawing us away from living for God and focusing on that central task of spreading the good news. So we find ourselves busy doing all sorts of stuff. But it's stuff that's ultimately of no value and consequence. I wonder what temptations you're facing today. In what ways is Satan seeking to draw you away from Jesus? In what ways is Satan seeking to, to draw you away from living that, that, that radical life of being a follower of the Lord Jesus? It's really good to, to know that, to know what our own weakness is, to know the things that we struggle with, our Achilles heels, if you like. Because if we know what the, the weaknesses are, then we can, we can take action, can't we? If we can identify what our temptations are, it makes things so much easier. When we know what our weaknesses are, where we'll be tempted then we can take action to prevent ourselves. And it's good questions to ask ourselves this morning. What temptations am I facing today? What what temptations perhaps do we face generally in our lives? And and the things that you struggle with will be different to the things that I struggle with. And it's good to get into a relationship with other people who you know are passionate about following Jesus so that we can hold each other to account and, and encourage each other 
and, and hold each other to account in that way. Something that we try and do as elders, Paul, Keith, and myself, uh, just in, in terms of challenging each other how we're living for Jesus. Some of you, or most of you will know I meet regularly with another bunch of leaders um, once a fortnight, and we just ask ourselves regularly, you know, how is this area, how is that area going, and just holding each other to account. It's good to do that so that we can stay focused on living for God. Now, God knew that Isaac was understandably tempted to head off to the security and the plenty of Egypt. And so God appeared to him in a vision, and he reminded him of what he was called to do. And Isaac on this occasion was obedient, and he stayed put in the promised land. But then he faced another challenge, and and this is just the reality of life. As we seek to follow Jesus, there's just going to be challenge after challenge as Satan comes at us in different ways. And this new challenge, look at verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, because she is beautiful. And at first glance, that might seem like a reasonable thing to do, you know, a little lie, a little compromise to protect himself. And, you know, that's kind of the spirit of the age, isn't it? We'll just kind of tell a few lies, we'll compromise, and it makes life so much easier. But the reality was that this was another temptation to compromise on what God had called him to do. And it was a a temptation not to be true to who he really was. He had this identity, he had this calling on his life, and this was a temptation to kind of compromise that whole identity. And it put Rebecca and the men of that city who may have taken her as, Uh, as their wife, in great danger, to say nothing of the contempt it showed for Rebecca. Now, you know, Satan is described by Jesus as the father of lies. Every time we lie, we follow in Satan's footsteps. And and, and as we lie, as we're tempted to lie, and if we follow through on that, our integrity is shot through. Isaac would have been safe. Rebecca could have ended up being taken by one of these men, and, and, and what a mess that would have been in his situation. And we face those same challenges today, whether it's at work, in our business dealings, or in our family life, or in key relationships. We we face that constant temptation, don't we, to take the easy option. And God wants us to stay true to him, and to stay focused on spreading the good news. But often it's easier, isn't it, when we're surrounded perhaps by a room full of non-Christians who don't share our passion and our love for Jesus. Whether that's at work, or in the family, or perhaps at school, the easier option is just to stay quiet. And sometimes that's a wise thing to do, we need to choose our moments. But the temptation sometimes is to go further and actually lie or or even deny who we are. And by our actions, sell Jesus out. And what sometimes might seem like a small compromise or or perhaps just being a little bit economical with the truth, just to make things a little bit easier for ourselves can often in the process ruin our testimony and it can ruin our integrity. So write this down. We need to stay true to who we are and we need to stay true to spreading the good news. We've got this identity, if, if we know and love Jesus as our Savior, we've been given this new identity as followers of Jesus. And our task is to spread the good news. Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And Satan will do whatever he can to compromise us, to draw us away from that. And we need to be true to who we are. So tempting to pull away from that, because it's easier. We, may, we might stand out less to compromise, but we need to stay true to who we are and to, true to that task of spreading the good news about Jesus and not sell out and not compromise as we go through this life. Now Isaac firstly faced the seemingly legitimate option of going to Egypt, that, that seemed legitimate, to provide food for himself and his family, even though actually to do so would have been failing to put his faith in God and in God's promises. Then he faced this temptation to lie and to compromise and, and try and protect himself, even though he was putting his wife in great danger and and treating it with utter contempt, really. 
But fortunately for Isaac, Abimelech had better morals and better standards than, than Isaac did because when he found out that Isaac and Rebekah were actually married, he acted to protect them and he made sure that they were protected. But then Isaac faced a different challenge. Look at verses 12 to 14. Isaac planted crops in the land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. And as he settled in Gerar, in this region of what was to become the promised land, the Lord blessed him and he became very wealthy. But this caused envy amongst the people around him. And envy developed into active opposition. So that in verse 15 we read this. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Now in the Middle East, we, we, this is kind of lost on us a little bit in, in, in the West, but in the Middle East, having access to a well of water is a fundamental necessity for life. If you have no wells, you have no water. No water, no life. You die. Simple as that. So to have people destroying the wells that Isaac had access to was a real attack on his very existence. And this was just another attempt by Satan to attack the person that God was at that moment working through to, to deliver his great promise of Jesus coming into the world. And just as Isaac faced this open attack from the people around him, so we also need to be ready for open opposition to us as we're seeking to live for God and seeking to tell other people about Jesus. Because Satan doesn't want us doing that. He doesn't want us living for God. He doesn't want us spreading the good news about Jesus, this great blessing that God has given to the whole world. You know, most of the time, Satan will be subtle and clever. And we won't often realize that Satan has been tempting us or, or drawing us away from God. Another title that Jesus gives Satan is the deceiver. And Satan deceives us. And the very nature of deception means we don't realize we're deceived. That's what deception is. And that's why it's important that we keep reading the Bible, because that, as we reconnect with the truth, it reveals the lies that we so often believe that Satan deceives us with. Sometimes though, Satan will come at us very directly, as he did with Isaac. And this was an open attack on Isaac, and sometimes we'll face the same. We don't need to fear Satan, because if we've trusted in Jesus, then we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and we, and we belong to God for all eternity. But his attacks are nevertheless real and dangerous, and we need to be ready for them. We need to be ready for, for opposition from those who don't love Jesus. In this country, the climate is changing massively and, and, and at a crazy pace where to be a follower of Jesus is becoming increasingly difficult and we're facing legal challenges and all sorts of problems. And we need to be ready for that because in the next five to ten years, I think we'll see it increasingly difficult to gather openly like this where the church will be driven underground. It might seem alarmist, but just have a look at the, the kind of political reality around us. What many Christians in the world already experience. Jesus said these words to his followers. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus' words. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. The world hated Jesus. It crucified him. It despised Jesus. And the world at large hates the church. It hates the gospel. It hates the good news. And we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't love Jesus don't embrace us as Christians and don't embrace the message of the good news. Of course, our calling is to keep on loving people so that they too might come into this great knowledge of Jesus. And that's what we pray for and live for, isn't it? Now, Isaac found himself having to move away from Gerar. And then, uh, despite digging new wells, the local people opposed him again. Verse 20 says this, But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, The water is ours. 
So he named the well Isek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. Isek means opposition in Hebrew, and Sitna means dispute in, in, in Hebrew. And this is another example of the challenges, the real-life challenges that Isaac faced. Isaac needed these wells of water for life. And the physical wells that we often read about in the Bible are often used as a picture or a symbol of spiritual wells. Often things in the Bible that they're real events, but they also have a spiritual application or a kind of spiritual picture that we learn from. And just as a physical well is somewhere that a person can drink water from. So if, if we're following Jesus, if we're living day by day in this living relationship with God through the Lord Jesus, then we need spiritual wells. We need to drink spiritual water to keep going in a world that is really spiritually dry and tiring. As, as we seek to live day by day as, as radical followers of Jesus, living for him and, and spreading the good news, we're going to get thirsty. We're going to get tired, not just physically, but, but spiritually. We need to feed on the Bible. We need to, we need to drink from those spiritual wells, not in, phys- not in a physical sense, but in the spiritual nourishments and, 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 and sustenance that comes as we read our Bibles, as we pray, as we spend time worshiping God, as we come together uh, as church this morning, that, that Hopefully we go home encouraged and built up in our faith so that we can go out again into a, into a lost, dark world and seek to spread the good news this week. And as we do these things, as we read the Bible, as we pray, as we, as we encourage each other, as we worship God together, just as water quenches our thirst, so the Holy Spirit quenches our thirst and helps us keep going in life. But just as Satan didn't want Isaac to have access to, this, uh, to these physical wells, Satan doesn't want us to have uh, time spending uh, in spiritual wells. He will do all he can to stop us praying or reading our Bibles or coming to church to worship. And we'll face all kinds of opposition and disputes in our lives that will try to prevent us from doing these things or or draw us away from doing these things. Sometimes it will be just in a kind of practical way in the morning, you know, you get up. uh, For me, I have my breakfast and I kind of lock myself in the front room with my Bible and I pray. And you can guarantee the phone will go just as as you're about to do that. uh, And it will be a legitimate thing, but it's a distraction. Or something will happen in the house. Or as you're coming out to church, if you've got kids, everybody will understand this. You're coming out to church, and just as you're going out the door, there's a nappy needs changing. Not with my kids anymore, but there's a nappy needs changing. (laughs) Or there's something that happens, or or someone isn't ready yet. And you can just guarantee that all sorts of stuff will happen. And often, usually legitimate things, but it draws us away from staying focused. It draws us away from those prayer times. It draws us away from reading the Bible, from coming together to worship God together. And so as we seek to live for God and tell others about Jesus, we need to keep our spiritual wells open and flowing. Write that down. We need to keep our spiritual wells open and flowing. What does that look like? Well, it means every time you spend in prayer or every time you try to spend time in prayer or read your Bible or come to church, you'll face opposition. Sometimes that will be open. Sometimes it will be subtle. And we need to be just be ruthless and committed to doing these things in spite of the, the obstacles that we'll face. We just, it's just life. Life is busy and, and, and it's all the stuff that just fills our day. And we need to be ruthless because if we don't make time, if we don't carve time out in our day to read the Bible, to, to pray to God, to come to church, to come here on time and be here, to worship God together, if we don't prioritize these things, if we don't make them happen, they won't happen. We need to be ruthless because if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it for us. And I just want to encourage you to do that today, to be ruthless in setting aside time to read your Bible to be ruthless in setting aside time to pray, to be devoted to coming to church so that we can worship, encourage, and be encouraged by other Christians. Because if we're going to stay on track living for God, 
in a difficult world, in a hostile world, if we're going st- to keep telling others about him, then we need to keep drinking from those spiritual wells of prayer, of Bible reading, of, of fellowship, of worship, of church life. It's so important that we do that. And despite the opposition that he faced, Isaac moved on because he knew he needed water. Look at verse 22. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. Isaac dug another well. He called it Rehoboth, which means room. And this was symbolic of the fact that he was in a kind of different phase in life. It was symbolic of the blessings that he was receiving at that moment from God. He knew he needed water. And as he gave himself to digging this new well, he found water. And he was able to have a period of time where things went well for him, and where he flourished, and where his family flourished. And having gone through this great time of testing and trial, he moved into a period where things were good and where God blessed him. And Satan left him alone for a, for a period of time. Verse 23 says this, From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And that's just shorthand for worship God. God had brought him through this difficult period of life. And once again, he restated this great promise that he was going to bless Isaac and he was going to work through Isaac and so Isaac once again gave himself to worshipping God and just as we will have great times of trial and testing so we'll also have times of blessing and rest and when we're really aware of God's blessings and promises and it's good to take time out in those times isn't it to worship God and to refocus on him when we get a bit of breathing space to remind ourselves what is our calling so easy in the, just the natural, legitimate busyness of life to lose track of what our calling is, to live for God, to spread the good news. And it's good in those, in those spaces of room in our life, in those Rehoboth moments, to remind ourselves who we are, to remind ourselves of God's calling on our lives, so that when that next period of challenge and testing comes, and it will come, then we're ready for it, and we're encouraged, and we're built up in our faith. Because living for God, And spreading the good news about Jesus is really ultimately all that matters in life. There's a lot of other good stuff, family, friends, holidays, stuff, you know, nothing wrong with it necessarily, but ultimately it's all just fluff. And we will go back in a box one day when we die, and all that stuff will go back in a box, and all that really matters at that time is whether we know Jesus. And all that will really matter is what we've done for Jesus. Maybe today that this great promise of God's to bless the world through Jesus isn't something that you've ever applied to your own life before. Can I respectfully and politely say that everything else in your life is utterly irrelevant in comparison to what you do with Jesus? The blessings of forgiveness, a relationship with God, and eternal life are not something that you can earn through doing stuff. They're a free gift that you have to accept by faith and by giving and surrendering your life to Jesus. And if you've never taken that step today to surrender your life to Jesus, then can I challenge you and encourage you to do just that today so that you too get to experience this great blessing of which all of history is ultimately about as Jesus died on the cross for you and me. We will all stand before God one day, whether we think we will or not, whether we want to or not, we will all stand before God one day. And the only thing that will matter then is whether we surrendered our life to Jesus in this life Many of us here today have trusted in Jesus. We've surrendered our lives to him. And for us, the challenge is to stay focused on living for God 
and spreading that good news about Jesus. We've got a very real enemy who will do all he can to prevent us from living for God and spreading that good news. And he hates the good news. And he will do everything in his power to tempt us, to seduce us, to scare us, to silence us, to devour us, to attack us. So we need to be alert. We need to be aware. We need to be wise so that we don't get sidetracked and we don't get led away from that all-important task of living for God and telling others about Jesus. And we need to be ruthless. And we need to ensure that we keep digging those spiritual wells drinking from those spiritual wells, doing things like prayer and, and, and Bible reading and worship and church life. Those things in and of themselves won't get us to heaven. It's trusting in Jesus does that. But if we've trusted in Jesus, we need to keep feeding ourselves by doing those things. Let's just take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to us this morning. Let me just close our eyes and bow our heads and tell a little reflection. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus then why not take that step today and put him first? We call Jesus the Lord Jesus, and Lord means he's in charge. That means that we are no longer in charge of our life, but he is in charge of our life. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And if you can't say that Jesus is Lord, that he's in charge of your life, then why not surrender to him this this morning and take that step? And in so doing, receive forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with God. Maybe that God is calling you afresh today to recommit yourself to that great calling to live for him. Spread the good news so that you can play your part in the world being blessed by the promise of Jesus. Maybe that he's revealed to you a way in which Satan has been at work in your life. And and if that's the case, now's a great time to put a stop to that. Maybe this is a moment to recommit to digging those wells and ensuring that you drink from them. Let's just take a few moments to pause and reflect and respond to what God has been saying to you this morning. And if there's anything I've said or anything else that takes place in the service this morning that you want to talk to me about afterwards or Paul, then do come up to, do come and chat with me afterwards. I'd be delighted to talk to you. But let's just bow our heads and, and close our eyes and just reflect and allow God's spirit to speak to us. And if God is speaking to you this morning, don't, do not reject his voice. Bow and respond to him, I pray.